at its finest, branding is just uh, creating the most authentic version of yourself and communicating it clearly. This is Sean Naughton of Artillery Brewing, and you're listening to the Beer Mighty Things podcast. Welcome into the Beer Mighty Things podcast. It's what you listen to while you brew. It's what's in your ears as you drink beers. Joining us today is a leader of a strategic creative studio that's focused on helping CPG brands win on shelves online and in real life. Please welcome in the founder and CEO of Skidmore Studio in Detroit, Michigan, Drew Patrick. Drew, what's up, man? Hey, Kyle. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Excited to talk talk beer and things. Yeah, beer and things and, you know, all things mighty and, uh, you know, failures and trying new shit, right? So Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I was excited to come on. I was excited about the how you've titled your podcast because our, our previous owner um, of the studio wrote a book and titled it Dare Mighty Things. He was a big okay. fan of that quote from yeah. Teddy Roosevelt. And so Dare Mighty Things, Beer Mighty Things. I'm in, man. Let's do it. Love it. I love it, man. So it must be a uh, little kismet there, a little serendipitous and all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Drew, tell me about what it means to be a studio versus a marketing agency. You know, when I go to your website at skidmorestudio.com, the word agency is scribbled out and studio is replacing that. What does that mean? Yeah, Skidmore has been around for 63 years and founded in Detroit as a creative hub, a place for the top creative talent in our area to be able to do their best work. And the reason it was founded is because that creative talent wasn't really able to do their best work in the traditional agency setting. So that's been something that's been at our core in our soul since our founding is agencies um, in the big agency environments, unfortunately, tend to be places that are account driven, not creative driven, um, uh, move a little slower, have a little more red tape, kind of like your, you know, your large scale food and bev companies as opposed to craft. So yeah, uh, I would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're a place where stuff gets done, right? We're a place where the real work happens, where we get our hands dirty. We're creating from scratch. We're really focused on our clients' businesses and our clients' customers, right? So that we feel like the the name studio is more representative of how we do our work than traditional agency. So that's why we choose to do that. That's awesome. I love it. I feel like when your employees show up to work and they're like, I'm going to the studio versus like, I'm going to the agency, like stuffy, right? Like, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like there's like a little bit of extra like energy behind that where you're like, I want to, I'm trying to create, right? I want to be Yeah. We really feel like studio equals creative, right? Yeah. Like we have, we still yeah. have a mat room, which is not common in many creative environments now. Um, and it's a, it's a, you know, agencies have creative environments sometimes and they've got their design areas and, um, not to disparage agencies at all, but we're, we're different, um, and intentionally different and they're intentionally different from us. So, um, yeah, both, both serve their purpose, but we just, we love to get into the, the branding side of things and, uh, uh, the design side more so than the tactical marketing aspect of, uh, you know, the creative and marketing world. So, I said that that's why studio fits for us too. Interesting. Did you, how many years did you say your studio has been around? We've been around since 1959, uh, 63 years. That makes us this year. 
you look good for being like 90 years old. Dude, I feel pretty good. I feel spry. <laughs> Still moving. Uh, I'm the fourth owner of the entity. Let me say we're a, we're a family business that's had three different families involved. Um, and so I, unfortunately, I never met our founder, Leo Skidmore. Um, he passed in the 90s long before I ever found Skidmore or knew of it. Okay. Uh, his daughter took it over uh, in the 90s. And then a gentleman that worked for her named Tim Smith, uh, unrelated, uh, took it over from her, purchased the studio from her in 2010. That's, I was uh, a friend of Tim's and I had just exited another business that I was a partner in. And he's like, Hey man, I'm doing something cool here. Come check it out. You could help. You're the one guy I know that I trust with numbers. Yeah. So come help me get this on the right track uh, and turn it into what I want to turn it into, which is kind of where we're at today. Uh, and so I joined the firm 2000, end of 2009. And uh, about eight years later, really unexpectedly, Tim passed away. So I ended up acquiring the business totally unexpectedly. It was not my intent. Uh, Tim and I didn't have conversations about that. He was a young guy. And uh, yeah. so I was expecting to actually expecting to leave the studio uh, within the next year or so. And so the, the opportunity to purchase it was really unexpected, but I, I'm really happy that I'm where I'm at and circumstances were awful. Obviously Tim was one of my best friends. Um, but here now, now I own a creative studio and I'm not a designer by trade, uh, but I'm in love with the world. I love being in the world surrounded by creative people advocating for their work and uh getting to see them you know create things from scratch that i'd never be able to do on my own it's kind of the short story of how i got to be here yeah all right so that's how you you know got your foot in the door and became you know essentially the owner there what about beforehand it seems like your journey you know you've always been a self-starter some sort of entrepreneur um kind of always wanted to, to lead the charge there is that true is that something you always wanted to do <laughs> Yeah. Like any good creative soul, I started my career in public accounting, uh, did that for a couple of years and realized it was not uh, what I want to do, but it was great background, right? I think even, you know, whatever business you're in, whether it's craft beverage or, you know, whatever, like having a good financial acumen. And I know you've done a few episodes on that, which is I'm sure is appreciated. Um, having a good financial acumen is critical to being successful. So yeah. I appreciate the background I had, just knew it wasn't the, the world I wanted to live in. I didn't like wearing suits every day. Yep. Um, and now stumbled into the creative world and just fell in love. And that's, that's I'm lucky that I found it, but it was not the plan. Um, yeah. After I was in public accounting, I left and I was, I was selling material handling equipment, like as a partner in a basically a manufacturer's rep business. Uh, and that's the business I did for a few years, loved the entrepreneurial side of things, but knew I didn't love selling steel. So, yes. uh, my partner did. And I told him one day, I, I went up to him and said, man, I know this is going to be a shock, but I got to leave. And he said, why? I said, I got to go find something that I love as much as you love this. Yeah. And I saw him every day, just so excited to be doing what we were doing. And, uh, I didn't, I liked it, but I didn't love it like he did. So he's yeah. still running that business. I still talk to him all the time. And, uh, now I've got one of my own that I feel the same way about. You got to have that feeling, you know, if it's not, if it doesn't give you that feeling, you got to go find it or else you're yeah. just going to be miserable, you know? 
That's wild. For sure. I think too, you know, you work at Ernst and Young, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe why, you know, so out of college, you know, I get the job corporate America, you know, I worked at ING and Prudential. Right. And I think it's super important for folks, you know, go to college and then, you know, get a taste of corporate America, find what you like about it and find what you don't like about it. And, then do what you like, but carry those things that work, carry them with you, see how they run a big business, see how you do the onboarding and, and all the different departments. So I think that's super valuable. And obviously the relationships you build along the way, you know, there's, you can't put a price on those things. Yeah, I agree. And that was the great thing about public accounting in particular was, you know, as an auditor, it just went around to different companies and saw, you know, 20 different companies over the course of a year. A lot yeah. of manufacturing, obviously, being in Detroit area, um, traveling around, going to corporate locations, going to plant locations, getting, yeah. you know, um, exposure to manufacturing was really cool. So I, yeah. I can appreciate um, that side of things. And yeah, it's it's good to get exposed, to your point, to a lot of different yeah. things when you're starting out um, so you can so you can know what you like and you don't like to your own to your yeah. point. That's so, you know, always comes back to kind of, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, the only way to find out is to, you know, essentially try new things. Um, be curious, right? Be stupid. Yeah, I, say, I didn't even know <laughs> the creative world in the way that I know it now existed. I grew up in, you know, a family that it was pretty straightforward, um, fairly conservative. And, you know, was go to school, get a good job, work in corporate America was the, the, the path you were on. Okay. And so I didn't, I didn't know this amazing, creative, kind of hectic, but, um, you know, creative environment existed until I found it, you know, years into my career. And, uh, yeah, but it's different world. It's not for everybody, even for a lot of people who think it's for them. It's not. Um, so yeah, but we love it. How about your family members there who were saying, Hey, this is the path. And now they see where you are. Have you opened up their mind to what a career path or, or things could be? Yeah, I think so. So I got like my, um, I got five nieces and nephews. Okay. Right? And uh, one of them, right. Two of them right now are exploring careers in the creative field. So hopefully uncle Drew's uh, exposure <laughs> they provide for that might've uh, given some influence, but yeah, given that both their parents have pretty traditional career backgrounds and are very successful in what they do, but you know, it's good to get exposure to, yeah. to some alternate environments too. I love it. Yeah. And I was kind of poking around in your profile. You played sports growing up. I did. It's about all I did. It's about okay. all I wanted to do. Right. Okay. Uh, I ended up carrying through football and track into college. Um, I was a, I was a sprinter and a receiver on a football team. Um, right. That was okay. It wasn't that great, but I wanted to keep playing and it was fun. So I went to a small school in Michigan called Albion college, uh, which was a really good division three program, uh, in the nineties, early two thousands. And, uh, I am, it's great memories looking back and I've got good friendships from that time, but man, even at the lowest level of D three college football is rough. Full-time I'm job. feeling Full-time it now. Home. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I say it's more like, well, I don't know. Everybody talks about all the time commitment and yeah, it was there, but I played two sports. I had a job and I graduated in three and a half years. And I just say it's time management. And yeah. if you like to be busy and active, then it's not that difficult. I think a lot of people just yeah. want to take a more relaxed path. And that wasn't me. And it's not anything about 
like, Oh, I'm better. It's, it's just natural. It's like, I want to be active and, and be doing stuff. I don't like to sit around. So it worked for me, but that I'm feeling it now, man. It's like this every other week, chiropractor appointments for life now. Um, so I don't know if I had to do it over again, I'm not sure I would. Well, if you think back to what weight training was, you know, your, your coaches back then and what they went through, it's like you deadlift and you squat and you bench and you don't do anything. You know, you don't even think about yoga or stretching. You just eat meat and lift weights. And it's just funny how we've evolved. Uh, you know, I do a lot of P90X, right? Tony Horn's like, he's like, you did these things because that's what they knew. And now it's, you know, football teams are doing yoga and taking ballet and they're understanding how their bodies work and recovery, and, you know, the old coaches are smoking cigarettes and drinking scotch. It's like, do this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Get a bench press as much as you can or deadlift yeah. as much. Yeah, you're right. It was so silly. I look back on that. It's like as a receiver, I didn't need to be doing any of that stuff. Um, I would have been well served to just work on agility. And, <laughs> exactly. And, and that was not the recommended conditioning no. program at the time. Nope. They didn't know about that stuff. Cool. So what do you think about, you know, your time playing sports, you have a team, you're a teammate, you're a leader. How has that translated into managing a team, managing a business? Do you think that's valuable? I mean, yeah, of course. Right. It's um, you know, what, what makes a great team. I mean, you gotta have, you gotta have some leadership. You gotta have some inspiration and you gotta have some energy. Uh, and so that's, I try to bring that to our table every day and the team, you know, the, the thing is, it's not always, um, everybody's not always on every day, but yeah. as the leader, you got to try and be on every day. And the old, you know, cliches, you fake it till you make it. And, um, I've found generally speaking in my world, we got a great team. we got great people. Everybody says that of course, yeah. but when you have a small team, it's easier to curate, Yeah, I think. Um, so we really do have team that's really caring, um, compassionate, uh, enthusiastic about the work we do. So it's not hard to, to bring that energy to the table. Um, but then I always, I do, I love thinking about our business like a sports team and like sports gives you like this black and white, um, cutthroat environment. So you get to see this public, um, uh, approach to, you know, we need the best player possible at every position. And we got a good one here and we're going to cut the good in order to get the great. And it doesn't work like that in business typically. Um, so I'm like, I don't know. That's probably why I'm fascinated by drafts. Just, I love the NFL drafts. My brother came over to watch that. Nice. Um, I don't really watch the NBA, but I'll sit down and watch the NBA draft. Uh, okay. It's just about, it's about team building. It's about that. I kind of look at it as a general manager and what, what is the piece configuration yep. that yeah. we need? And sometimes you've got a superstar and they're just not the right fit for the team. Um, I try to apply that thinking to our company and uh, you know, we, we do our best, but it's a, I'm also not in the, in the position I'm practice more of a compassionate leadership where uh, I don't want to, um, be disrupting people's lives in the way that professional athletes lives have to be disrupted when they're cut from a team. So, um, there's some, some different approaches from that standpoint about coaching and, um, growth and changing roles and trying things that, uh, might be productive for both sides. And it doesn't always work, but, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not running the, the Philadelphia Phillies or the, or the Detroit lions. So, 
I'm not going to make decisions exactly the way I see, but I still like to watch. You might need to bring you in. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we're doing all right right now. I feel like there's a lot of optimism around here, unwarranted, but there's a lot of optimism. Good. Absolutely. Uh, I also think that sports kind of brings out, you know, that mind frame. Um, and then, you know, that time when you like, you got to get in the zone and then there's, there's game day, right. Game day prep. Um, you know, there, there's only so many things I think can prepare you for like those deadlines and, and getting things done under pressure. Um, so I just most curious uh, what athletes think about that. Yeah. Cool. You know what I've heard though, from my team um, working in the creative world, which is something that I wasn't exposed to, like I said, in earlier in my life, but uh, my team, certain people on the team will draw parallels to my, you know, athletic experience to art school and having okay. major, you know, deadlines for projects that, you know, they'd have to pull all nighters and, and it was either group or individual and having to have that mentality of like the pressure's on the pressure's on. I have to perform. There's no give. So I yeah. think there's, there's other arenas where you can do it. And I was, I was surprised a year later in life about those, those parallels that some of the creatives brought to the table um, without having been athletes. I even think about authors and journalists. It's like, you have to have this done by X date, or maybe it's even hours from now. And like, it's not clicking. You got nothing going on. Like, how do you, how do you get the juices flowing? Right. So all I, I, to come up with new, fresh content all the time, I think is very difficult, you know, for, for a writer, things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. What's interesting in our world, our writers, we have copywriters on staff. Our writers will say, writing's no problem. It's editing. It's like, it's mm. easy to write a thousand words. It's hard to write 10. Um, or it's, it's hard to cut it down to really yeah. the, the minimal most. Um, cut the fluff you know, out, still make it interesting, captivating. Yeah, exactly. But oh. for them, people have the more um, inherently creative approach, like the, the, the flow is yeah. there usually um mm. the ideas come out we've been designers in the same fashion we've got designers historically who just like man the concepting it just comes out it's amazing and i'm like you right i think like oh if you put me down there with a blank sheet of paper i'm feeling a lot of pressure and it's the <laughs> yeah. getting started that's tough yeah uh, for for our creative talent for the most part i think it's more in the direction of like they can they can kick out concepts and ideas and thoughts it's the how do i land the plane this, that's an expression we use internally all the time okay. it's like okay these are great we got to land the plane though so which which directions are we really going to hone in on and and revise and refine to a point that they're the best version of whatever your initial thought was um, and will be the most effective you know solve for whatever it is we're trying to solve uh, so it's yeah different people have those the, you know, some are great starters, some are great finishers, same thing. That, that applies to the creative team too. Um, you need both. I love it. So let's, let's talk about your team. Let's talk about what you guys do. Um, let's talk about what is branding versus marketing? How do those differ? Yeah. So first Skidmore helps emerging CPG brands grow. We do that through building really strong brand foundations and then transitioning those into brand activation. That's the core of what we do. So we work on food and Bev mainly. Um, and most of the time clients are coming to us with one of two requests. Like we need new packaging design or new brand. That's I put those into one bucket. Or they say we need a new website just because that's what people 
They yeah. always talk about the, the deliverable. Uh, and most people who come to us for a new website end up doing something further upstream like brand evolution or brand foundation work because it's not all there. Um, in their minds, they need a new site. But when you start talking about what do you actually need this for? What are you trying to do? Who are you yeah. trying to communicate start to? to peel the onion. Yeah, there's some more foundational work that needs to be done. Doesn't always need to be like a really lengthy process, but you at least need to settle on um, some foundational elements around audience, your position, um, and then how you're going to message that position beyond just visuals that are in place. So, yeah, we look at branding as uh, reasons to believe in uh, our clients or in the entity. So it's the aspirational, it's the emotional, it's um, why do you exist in this world from the, from a why perspective, not yeah. a what perspective, not what mm-hmm. you do. Um, and then marketing is about reasons to buy. It's activation focused. It's conversion focused. It, um, so yeah, we, we like to distinguish between brand and marketing. And we always like to say our mantra is brand before marketing, um, mainly because we're concerned about our clients having efficient spend of their marketing budgets. If you're, you can do all the awareness marketing and activation marketing you want. But if you haven't honed what you're saying and who you're saying it to, um, you're just going to be spending money. So we say it is worth the investment to focus in on establishing your brand foundation, hone your position. You know, we use a tool called a brand framework, um, which is going to give you all the elements you need from a a messaging standpoint, uh, foundation, foundational messaging standpoint in order to then effectively market and activate your audience um, through tactical marketing. So that's our, that's our POV is brand before marketing. Don't waste your dollars on uh, advertising or, you know, marketing campaigns until you've addressed the foundational items. Love that. How'd you make your way into doing some branding for the craft beverage world? So it's, you know, like we said, we've been around for 63 years. And at the beginning of this, it wasn't craft beer. Surprise, surprise. Um, being in Detroit, most of what we were doing was automotive work, uh, okay. industrial work, manufacturing work. And really Skidmore was an illustration shop. So while the heart of us, I mentioned before, is being the environment where the top creative talent in our area can do their best work um, in a healthy setting, uh, we've evolved in what we do over time. So we went from automotive illustration to then doing a lot of graphic design work, a lot of print publication design work. And then when I joined the firm, um, we're kind of doing everything. We're doing, uh, we're doing branding for lots of different industries and through conversations um, internally, we knew our best bet to be not only a sustainable business, but to be most helpful for our clients. We needed to take, you know, some of our own medicine and be more well positioned in our space. Uh, at the time, we had a good book of business in food and bev and a good book of business in financial services and a good bu- book of business in healthcare. And what most firms in our space do is say, then, oh, great, we have three practices. We have our healthcare, we have our financial services, and we have our food and bev. And we did not believe that was the right path to sustainability or most importantly, expertise. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we decided to go all in on food and bed. And it was simply a choice based on what we wanted to do. We said, 
Yeah. If we want to make the most money, we should go into financial services. We were working with American Express and Visa and some regional mm -hmm. banks. And like they, one, they don't have much of an idea about creative or marketing. So they're willing to, and they have money, so they pay more. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really lucrative space if you're a, a top-notch creative firm who focuses on financial services. And our owner at the time said, shoot me in the head. I will not work. I'm not going to lead a firm that focuses on financial services. I don't care about it. I wasn't it. passionate about it. Right. Uh, and same thing on healthcare. It just wasn't a passion point. Food and Bev's, we got excited. Yeah. Uh, so at the time we said food and fun because we were working with, we had toy clients, sporting goods client, CPG based. Um, and then, uh, so we, but that was the pivot we took, uh, I, don't know, I hate that word too. Sorry, stress that. Uh, <laughs> 2020, the word of 2020. Right. We focused on food and bev uh, maybe 10 years ago is when that journey started. Uh, got to do some work for AB InBev and some work for PAPS, so on the larger scale. And so once you have those names in your portfolio, uh, you get some opportunities and uh, others. And that's when some craft brewers came to us and some craft beverage and yeah, love that work. Now, now, uh, as of, let's say about four years ago, we've got all in on helping emerging. So we don't seek out any work from the larger, um, larger food and bev companies. When it comes to us, we'll take a look and if it's the right fit, we'll, we'll, uh, entertain it, but everything we're doing, um, proactively is to identify emerging brands that we can help accelerate their growth because that's where we're most passionate it's fun yeah. the teams are more nimble the teams are more interested in uh executing on the vision that we share together as opposed to appeasing individual stakeholders that are in the right. chain of command at the entity and so I mean, this is probably why everybody you know went into the craft brew industry is leaving corporate gigs or things yep. that they weren't passionate about to go into something they are so we're in the same space. That's why we focus on emerging now. It's very cool. All right. And, um, you know, people, product, process, public face. You've been helping these folks uh, develop that um, outward facing branding. Um, you've done some cool things with Griffin Claw Brewing Company. Um, very cool Chevron design, black and white. And, uh, you know, working with some charities there. Smooge, super cool, um, unique smoothie hard seltzer what That's hard a, seltzer smoothie is the yeah. the current position the spoiler alert there may be some some adjustments coming there smooth right. has been awesome to work on i mean they're great it's homes brewing out of ann arbor uh really fantastic high quality brewer uh, in the area that you know created an innovative product uh, two years ago and launched it and it was incredibly well received and so now that's, uh, I have to say maybe flagship product for them now okay. and they're getting yeah. national distribution and, um, that thing's growing, growing well. So they're great partner, great client, great product. Um, now I'm not much of a smoothie drinker. Uh, so it's not for me, but that's, I think that's an important thing. It's like when you're innovating, especially now with such a saturated market in beverage, like you yeah. don't want to create a product that's necessarily trying to be for everyone. Um, yeah. And it's okay. Lean into it. 
Yeah, it's the thing, right? Niche, niche for everything, right? You you had three uh, avenues in your studio, and you chose one, right? You chose the food and beverage niche, right? They're a brewery, and they have other brands, I'm sure, but they said, all right, you know what? This is the one we're going to stick behind, and we're going to focus all of our attention on it. Um, so when it comes to creating a brand, we're out there. We spent a lot of time and money and effort doing that. Um, but as the products evolve, people evolve, our brands evolve, um, let's talk about the realities of rebranding and, and how you, you know, step in and, and help guide these folks in doing so. Yeah. And I'll, as we get into that, I'll first touch on your four P's, right? We talk okay. about what is a brand. And then we talk about, <laughs> before we talk rebranding, let's, let's be clear on what a brand is, right? All right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, we, we use that framework of four P's, which your brand is first and foremost, your people, the people that you have working for you are creating a culture, which creates, um, you know, then a, a line through to whatever's happening with the consumer. But between that, you've got your product, your processes of how you get your product out into the market. And then at the end, you've got your public face. So you go from your people to make your product, the processes that connect those, then out to the consumer and then public face. And the only thing we can help you with as a brand and marketing firm is the public face side. So your brand is heavily influenced by so many things that we can't control. The mm-hmm. worst thing uh, you can do as a, as a, a brand, a consumer brand is think that you're going to go to uh, a firm like ours and we're going to fix all your problems. Uh, we're we're going to help, but we can only help so much. Right. Yeah, we and can't create your clear, recipe like, that goes in the can. Yeah. yeah. Or your quality control right? Or, or just like, you know, are, are you your customer service, right? Your all of the aspects yeah. that give the end consumer an impression of, of who you are, your public face then, then represents all of those things. So all we can do is really, um, hopefully help you give the most authentic form of communication of that true brand that your people product and process represent in your public face. And that's, that's what we're trying to do in all of our work is authentically capture and visualize who you are. Um, and a lot of times that's pretty daunting for a customer because they haven't really defined it clearly for themselves yet. It's like, we made a great product. People liked it. So we made more of it. And we sold it. And it's like, that was great. Um, and then as you scale and grow, uh, eventually you get to a point where you, you, you've had some success. And if you really step outside of it, you might not know exactly what you're trying to do going forward or, or what made it work or why you did it. Um, so that's the first part of, of the yeah. branding process just through a few interviews, you're trying to decipher who they are, <laughs> you know, and help them yeah. find themselves. And you're trying to, you know, convey what they are to the public. That's, that's pretty difficult. Yeah, but it's fun. It's fun because I mean, I think for our clients too, it's, it's introspective. Um, as a going to a little philosophy here for saying like as a human race, I think we're a little, uh, we lack in self-awareness, but when we're driven to be introspective and have some self-awareness, um, I think it's appreciated but individually, right? We, we appreciate knowing ourselves a little better. 
And so a branding exercise when done well is about knowing yourself a little better and being able to communicate it, you know, words and pictures, visualize and message uh, that, that improved uh, persona or public face out to the people who are interested in hearing your story. That's it. Uh, so, so at its, at its finest, branding is just uh, creating the most authentic version of yourself and communicating it clearly. Fantastic. True. That is super interesting. Um, and the fact that we have to uncover that persona of this brand while helping them try to figure it out for themselves. Do you have a checklist? Like what's the approach? Is there a process that, that you follow to do that? Yeah, there's definitely a process and something we've honed over years, right? Not to, and not to belabor the point. And we're trying to do things as efficiently as possible, especially with emerging brands where you don't have the same budget as an AB InBev to do extensive discovery research, uh, profiling, all those things. So we're pretty tight in how we do it um, through uh, interview with stakeholders. Is You're going to draw out a ton of information. I say this, um, most founders and executives and leaders know the story in their head. They just don't know how to articulate it. So we have strategists on hand who use their tool set to get that information out. Um, so that's that's a perspective. And you can yeah. also do sampling of uh, existing consumer, uh, we'll say survey or interview. We tend to we tend to lean more into the qualitative side of things. So doing a select group of interviews individually uh, rather than quantitative survey of like mass numbers. Uh, we feel like we get better data for branding on the qualitative side and better data for marketing on the quantitative side, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, getting into that uh, process to draw out all of the, the authenticity of the brand. And it's really, you're trying to draw down into who are you? What do you do? Who do you do it for? What makes you different? And then what's your personality? And then personality flows into how you talk about yourselves, how you see yourselves, what visuals make sense. Um, yeah, what tone so you, do we want to project, you know? Yeah, voice, tone, personality, yeah. Um, which all then drives key messaging. But going through that progression of stakeholder understanding, audience understanding, using our intuition and expertise, and then building out that framework in order gets us to a really healthy spot of saying, mm -hmm. okay, we, we feel good about who we are, who we're talking to, and what we're trying to say. How many interviews might you do uh, with the company? How depends on, I mean, it, the answer to everything is it depends, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'd say five or six is a typical, when you're talking about, we'll do five or six customer interviews. And then we might do a few other stakeholder interviews with either okay. vendors or retailers or some other stakeholder in the chain that uh, would have some some solid information. And usually our, our founders or executives, they know who they want us to talk to um, so we can get a list together. And again, we don't want to, uh, you know, one of the points, and you know, I think you'll, you'll bring this up, I wrote recently, uh, Seven Steps to Successful Rebrand. And one of them uh, is don't take too long. Uh, mm. if, you, if the longer your process takes, the more it's going to cost you. That's it. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be better. Uh, you don't want to shortchange 
the process. But what I think what's more detrimental, people don't generally want to shortchange the process. They want to get a fair value for what you're doing. But um, more often than not, the process is delayed and that's not helping. Okay. Is it delayed? Just they're, they're thinking too much or they changed their mind or again, just comes back to them not knowing exactly where they are or what they are. Yeah. There's, there's always reasons why, and it's, we see it. It's the challenges. You know, if you're, if you're running a brewery, you've got a thousand things going on. So even if you're in the middle of a rebrand and it's critically important and you agree, it's critically important. You've got today's fire to put out. (laughs) So So you might've had, right. You might've had feedback due today. And you're like, dude, I just did not get to it. Um, I'll get to it tomorrow. And then tomorrow's fire pops up. Uh, so yeah. it's life, right? It's running a business that there's the things that we don't disparage our clients for having those delays, but reality is, um, it's, it, it ends up costing you more. And I say for two factors, one, you're going to have to pay for more time, um, essentially. And two, the real value of the, of a rebrand is in getting the uptick in sales or velocity that a rebrand's inevitably going to get if you do it right. Yeah. And the longer you delay that, the longer you're delaying an increase in sales. For sure. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Hmm. All right. So we're going down that journey. We have a good brand. We want to strengthen it. We come to you. We need to rebrand. You mentioned seven steps where do we go? How do we do this? And, and, you know, time and, and costs and it's, especially like an established brand has been around 15, 20 years, right? This yeah. is a big, big deal. Uh, we've had some folks in, we've had some folks in Pennsylvania who've rebranded recently and they, you know, they're on year 2025 and it's like, it's a lot of freaking work. So, yeah. And that's, so we've done, we've done a lot of heritage brand rebrands too. We're rebranding right now. 130 year old company that's in um in michigan that's on the food side of things but uh yeah you got a lot of legacy opinions and standards and norms and things so i always say uh and especially for small family-owned businesses privately held businesses founder-led businesses this is incredibly personal absolutely it's it's your identity it is who you are out into the world so think about changing that and having some smart ass come in who, you know, whatever you don't know or haven't met come in and tell you who you should be. Um, I and, understand and hesitation. cutting you out. <laughs> <He's pissed>. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's so funny. We've got another uh, Detroit based heritage brand here on the beverage side that we're taught, we're working with third generation and grandpa is still around. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I'm in meeting with the, the two grandchildren who are now at the executive level. Uh, they're talking, yes, we're in, we're in. And so I, I raised the question of, you know, is grandpa on board? And they're like, well, he's conceptually, he's on board. And this is my number one first rule of having a successful rebrand is if you don't have explicit buy-in from the top, whether it's a board of directors or a CEO or an, a founder who's not uh, in the day-to-day anymore, yeah. if you don't have that, don't start. Yeah. Like too often, I've seen the unbelievable circumstance where a company has spent a significant amount of money to go through the entire process, and at the end, it's vetoed 
by somebody who says, we're not doing that. And that like, <laughs> it breaks my heart. Uh, Cause oh, all man. you had to do is ask upfront, like, are you on board with this? And you know, if grandpa says no, don't do it. Yeah. That's <laughs> That's step That's one. Uh, and we've seen it. it it's strange. Um, I wish I didn't have to go to my second hand to count how many times that has happened. Uh, but it's just for some reason, I don't know if it's ego or what, but, um, which we all have and we all fall oh, yeah. victim to, um, he goes the end when anytime, if you ask somebody that you're talking to, well, are you the decision maker? They're going to say yes. And, uh, ultimately we find out too often that it's not, I guess you got to um, say, you know, who all is in this decision-making process, right? You may yeah, be a decision maker, but who else? Right. And, and that's it. We've reframed that question now to say, who are the other stakeholders involved and how much influence do they have? And who's so going we to get... disown you and not invite you to Thanksgiving? <laughs> right. <laughs> or, or, uh, you know, this is a person's name on the can. Does that happen to be a real person? If it is, <laughs> we should probably get there. Okay. Before we, we should start. probably come to this meeting. Right. And that, that's a real scenario, by the way. Yeah, I'm sure, <laughs> man. That's nuts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so get buy-in for it. So once you have buy-in, where do you go from there? And my second piece of advice is hire an expert and trust them to do their jobs. And there are, uh, there are a lot of solid creative firms out there that specialize in food and bev CPG specifically. You'll even find some that are really honed in on craft beverage Okay. specifically. Yeah. Um, so I don't claim that Skidmore is the only game in town. We're great. We do great work. Um, happy to work with craft brewers, but there are, there are others. Now that said, there are a lot of people who have done brands, rebrands within the beverage world that probably shouldn't have. And we see it day in and day out. And I just talked to, um, and this was a kombucha brand um, last week, and they had just gone through some packaging redesign work, but one of their board of directors members is somebody that I had come to know. So he reached out to me and said, what do you think? And I walked him through in about 20 minutes, three pretty critical errors they made. And then I went to the, the firm site and, you know, beautiful design. We'll say that. Like, so this looks great, doesn't it? I said, yeah, it looks great. But that's not the, the bar. The bar is, is this, uh, is this going to come off shelf and is it communicating the primary message you want to communicate to the audience who you're intending to reach? He's like, oh shit. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. It looks, it looks good though. Right. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it looks great. Um, but yeah, when, if you don't work in food and bev every day, if you don't work in product that's at retail every day, you, there's just things you don't know. You don't know. And you don't so know. I say hire an expert, trust them to do their job. And that's the other side of it is trust them to do their job. And that we always tell our, our prospects up front too. Uh, if you're hiring a firm and you want to art direct them and design direct them and tell them what to do, you don't need to hire an expert. You already know what you want to do. That's okay. That's cool. There's no problem with that. But what's hard is when you hire an expert who expects to do their, their work and you're being very prescriptive in what you want it's just usually not a good fit. It's going to be a contentious relationship because that's yeah. not uh, what a firm like us is intended to do. Yeah. So I always tell people in that case, you're much better off getting a really um, high quality production designer, which 
they're out there and they're great and they're incredibly valuable to bring to life your, your vision of what you want. Yeah. They already have the vision. They don't need to create it for you. They just need to implement it. Right. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I would certainly in certain, uh, if you're evaluating individual cases, you know, there may be reasons why you would or wouldn't do that. But if that's someone's preferred path, um, then there's no issue with that. But if you hire an expert firm that is expert in brand, trust their process, trust them to do their work. Similar, you know, a lot of the things you're saying is similar to what I do, right? Um, From an insurance standpoint, you know, hire, hire the hire and trust, right? Um, Let us do what we're 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 here to do. You make your product, we'll protect it. Um, You know, yeah. As I was writing this out, uh, and I gave it to one of our copywriters, strategists, who is a great editor, so I asked her to take a look and. yeah, I had, I had said, you, know, you don't go to your doctor and diagnose mm-hmm. your case and, and tell them which prescription to write. And she's like, actually, that's a problem these days. A lot of people do that. So <laughs> oh, I was man. like, well, okay, there you go. Yeah. Um, but we don't want to do that. If you're, if you're really looking at um, expertise in the space, there's, we say all the time, like, you're a craft brewer, you are expert at brewing beer. You wouldn't want me to come in and tweak your recipe. Or tell you how to how to brew from scratch because yep. there'd probably be a poor end result. For some reason in our world, I think that's understood, right? And people understand I wouldn't be able to brew because I don't know how. Right. On the other side, though, it seems like there's just more of a um, assumption that we all understand marketing under that big header of marketing, which means um, you're come on. We all understand, exactly. yeah what a package design could or should look like. And I just, we see it from experience, right? That, that your likelihood of success, which is what we care about. It's not about we're right, you're wrong. It's not about we did something cool and we're going to win awards. It's about increasing the likelihood of success, meaning sales increase, sales velocity increase. Return on investment, right? And return on investment. So what makes it more likely? What makes it more likely is taking it through a tested process within your category. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just continuing through some of the other things that I think are important if you're if you're considering, and we say rebrand. That could be a total overhaul. We call that revolution, right? Mm-hmm. Or it could be just a packaging redesign where you say like our visual identity, our logo, our secondary assets, our fonts, our colors, we're good with all that, but we need to redo our packaging. That's, that's a valid, um, stand out on scope the shelf. Of work. Yeah. Um, and again, it's case by case, whether we would agree that that's the right thing to do or not. Um, you'd have to take a look. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we say, yeah, you're, you got a great solid foundation with your brand and you just need to update your packaging and likelihood of success is high. Uh, and there's other cases where we say, here are some cracks in the foundation we're going to point out and we would really recommend fixing those before you go straight to packaging. Um, so deciding on that is another um, critical factor in success. Is this a full-on rebrand Or are we just talking about a packaging redesign? And if we're deciding it's a packaging redesign, 
let's all agree we went through the checklist of brand foundations and we're all good with how yeah. our foundations are set. Don't just assume yeah. we're good there and move yeah. on. Yeah, so that's those, there's like the sacred cows, right? I love this this one logo. I want to make sure it's carried forward into the next packaging, certain colors, that sort of thing. Yeah, and those sacred cows that brands have, we got to say like, there's no problem with it. There's no problem. We'll, we can accept constraints and yeah. still get to a place where we're likely to succeed. What really kills you though, from a timeline and budget standpoint is when it comes out after the fact. If you've gone through uh, you know, the discovery process, the strategy process, you're into conceptual design. And at the end of the first concepts you see, you go, yeah, you know, we really need to keep that blue that was in the old packaging because that's, you know, our owner's favorite color and they're never going to accept anything that doesn't have it. It's like, well, we just did all this work assuming we didn't have to keep that. Yeah. So Why it's based off of a strategy that may or may not allow for that. If we would have known it up front, we could have built strategy around it, incorporating yeah. it and made sure we were on track. So I say the most important thing isn't whether you are or aren't keeping any of those legacy elements. The most important thing is that you make it known up front what has to be kept. Yeah, you've got to have thorough, in-depth conversations with all the important parties involved, it sounds like, before yeah. everybody wastes time and money. I say, and you could say this generic statement about so many things that we do, but the critical key to success is alignment. Are the parties aligned up front on the problem we're solving and the constraints we must accept in order to solve it? And so if we are, if we're truly aligned on those two things, we can get through this pretty efficiently and have a pretty high likelihood of success coming out of it. Yeah. But All too right. often we don't, right? Ah, oh, man. I think, yeah, in, in all parts of life, right? Even marriages or whatever, right? You got <laughs> to be on the same page. Yeah, personal relationships can benefit from this, this same, uh, same list. This is now a marriage counseling uh, podcast. <laughs> I don't know that I'm the guy you want to be talking about that. I've been divorced myself, but um, you know, it's from the sidelines, they got a lot of advice. There you go. Oh, man. How about the uh, tendencies of our buyers? Yeah, this is this is critically important to our process and yeah. something that we believe in really deeply is you have to fully understand your category before you understand the individual shopper segment that you're trying to attract within that category. Okay. So a lot of times, a lot of firms go to, um, you know, who's your who's your target audience, and you get some demographic uh, definition of that target audience, or usually overlapped with geographic information. Um, and that's good. It's a good, it's better than nothing. It's a good yeah. starting point. Um, but we would very much advocate for understanding category first, and then, and then trying to define, we'll say psychographic segmentation of that category shopper, um, and then layering on geography, uh, in order to get the most effective target because, uh, when you're doing, uh, branding in particular, and visualization, the psychographic uh, profile of your shopper segment is going to drive decisions much better than demographic data. So I've so, never heard that term psychographic. Yeah. So psychographic means um, behavioral tendencies more so than 
you're a 43 year old white male who lives in uh, Detroit, Michigan. So that's, um, I gotcha. Okay. Right. That's demographic data. That's more of a description and here's actually the yeah. behavioral patterns. Yeah. And we use a tool, um, where we, we subscribe to a tool that houses the results of the largest U.S. based consumer survey, um, which is both survey data and then tracks online behavior data following survey. So okay. um, using that tool, we can get pretty, pretty good information about the, um, the drivers, the motivational drivers yeah. of uh, segmented shopper profiles. And so that helps drive our work. What is, what is the messaging and the visuals that we think are going to resonate with a shopper who's motivated by like inspiration as opposed to being motivated by safety. Mm. That'd be an example of, um, psychological motivators rather than saying what's a 43 year old white guy in Detroit. Like, Sure. Yeah. Okay. A lot more granular and descriptive and makes more sense. Okay. Yeah. It's just, it's what, like, what are we trying to do here? I I love the, the, um, this is not my, my, um, genius by any stretch, but when we're asking people to purchase our product, what are we doing? We're asking them to change their behavior. Right, because they're used to for a new customer. Essentially, they're used to going through their life and not purchasing our product, and to make that change of I'm going to take this off the shelf, put it in my cart, mm. and check out is a albeit small, but it is a change in behavior. So, yeah. uh, you know, branding and marketing is really about driving behavior change. How do you do that? Usually it's like through emotional connection sure. between consumer and brand. Uh, and so that, that's what this is all for. So we say um, the, the research side of things and understanding your shopper is critically important to having success in a rebrand. Yeah. Let's say I go and I same shampoo, same toothpaste. And don't think about it. Right. And in order to think about it, you really got to make me think about it. So Interesting. Yeah. And you're most likely not going to a shampoo or toothpaste because it's such a, like, it's a low reward to change. Yeah. Right. So why bother? Yeah. Okay. With a new craft beer though, mm. you could find something really great. Mm. So there's a little bit more of an incentive to have a behavior change. Yeah. And I think the craft beer category shopper is just um, more apt to be somebody who's interested in something new. Yeah. Right. I rarely buy the same beer, you know, yep. even if I liked it. So that's a great example. Like the, the craft brew category shopper has its own elements of um, likely uh, more broad characteristics. And we would say it because that market is so saturated now, it's not enough just to understand the general characteristics of the category shopper, even though they're real, they're there. Right. Um, you really need to segment your ideal audience further than that. Yeah, it's tough. That That's tough to come up. You know, what beer should we make next? What are they going to buy? Did they have this one before? They're probably not going to buy it again. Do we make it again? Like, there's a lot, you know, especially when it comes to ordering and production management and what beers you're going to make and a calendar. And yeah, I don't, uh, I don't envy those people who have that job. 
but they're the yeah. creatives. They get to come up with that. That yeah. should be energizing. Then. Yeah. So we can come up with something new. Ooh, what if we focus on this audience? What would they want? We can come up with this, this, and this. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, I think that would be the fun part of the business. Yeah. I like that. Let's talk about a part that may not be so fun when it comes to the branding. How about um, when the deliverable that you're putting out there, maybe they're not loving it. Um, how does that, company convey that to you say hey listen this isn't working like how can, how how to how to fix it how to how to well, i have no experience with this whatsoever <laughs> i didn't think so. never had I anyone i would stump you here yeah no um usually the the pushback you get usually not always but you the most common pushback you get is like eh, i'm not really feeling that sure i don't it's not really it's not wowing me right now or, or something to that effect people use different words like ah, i was looking for more sizzle or i you know i just don't have that aha moment these are all like things that are often said in the yeah. reviewing of creative what does that mean <laughs> yeah um and that is that's our response is in the most um compassionate yeah. way possible is can you can you describe what your expectation was and what's lacking is one one yeah. way to address that but two is Generally speaking, all those things are about preference. They're about personal preference. I like that or I don't like that. Or I, I just don't feel that is something that's around a personal preference generally. Yeah. And what we try to drive our clients to is do your best to let go of personal preference and help me understand why you feel this isn't paying off the strategy we agreed upon in the best way possible. Because inevitably your, your ideal shopper target that we're talking about isn't you. So when you're talking about personal preference, it becomes really, I don't, it sounds harsh, but it's irrelevant. The relevancy is around what is your ideal shopper profile going to get out of this design right what message are they going to get communicated is it going to resonate with them so they're even willing to listen to uh, the message you're trying to trying to put out so driving people towards preference as opposed or away from preference towards let's talk about the strategy let's re-engage in the strategy because that always comes first like we would never go into project and just jump into concepts for packaging because then what are you evaluating them on? Right. Personal preference. That's all you have to go on if yeah, you don't it's a, have it. And it's theirs, their personal preference, not the brand's. Right. So uh, I think that's the most common objection. But you also have, we have um, certainly great examples of clients who are, um, you know, our clients we sell all the time. They, you know your business better than we do. You know, craft brewers know yeah. the brewery business better than we ever will. We, we do our best to learn and understand and have expertise in the space, but we'll never know it as well as you because you're doing it day in, day out. So we get legitimate pushback. And as long as we can um, understand their concerns about the strategy, the tying the packaging design or brand design to strategy, yeah. then we resolve it. That That's not hard. And we're, um, we go back and we've gone even like a beverage brand in mind where First round of concepting, we got that feedback in that order too. I'm not feeling it. Well, what does that mean? Let's look at the strategy. And they were able to say, I don't feel as though it is paying off this component 
of the strategy in the way that it should. And we said, that's interesting. We thought it was paying it off for this reason, mm. but let us go back and take another look and see if there's something that would that would work better. And mm. ultimately, it was a completely different concept that moved forward because they challenged and were able to articulate it um, in a way that tied it back to the strategy which we'd agreed on. Yeah. Constant communication and, and being in touch and throughout the process. Okay. Um, yeah, little humility too, like on both yeah. sides. So you have to yeah. say it's never about us being right or them being right. It's it's how are we going to get to the right answer? And when I say right answer, that means the the answer that has the highest likelihood for success. And together as a partnership. Right. You know? Okay. And obviously, you know, we talked about, you know, don't don't drag it out, right? Keep things moving. Uh, more time does not mean better results. Um yeah. So I would say, depending on, you know, is it a full on rebrand? Is it a packaging yeah. design? And if we're talking about, especially in the beverage space, um, it's kind of a wide range, but two to six months is a good, is a good okay. um, ballpark, depending on, um, the, you know, how big of a scope scale we're talking about. Uh, and then when it goes beyond that, it probably didn't have to. Yeah. And, and how about the cost for something like that? Six months of a rebrand. X amount of SKUs, you know, what, what can somebody expect? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a huge range, right. But I hate when people don't answer that question. So we have for startups with single SKU, we've done rebrands for as low as 25 K that's okay. a minimum. Okay. Right. And that's really somebody who's not terribly established and has, I will I'll say it, um, in our terms, in the greater business terms, it's a lower risk of failure. It's high risk to them, most likely, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a lower risk of failure because they haven't had any scale yet. Right. Um, where okay. on the yeah. other side, if you've got somebody who's, you know, say you're nationwide a million dollars in sales and you know you want to be going from a million to five million to 20 million, but you, you know, you bootstrapped it to begin with. And you know you need to redo it, but you don't have a million dollar budget like AB InBev. So for that, if you've got, you're going to do a rebrand, new identity, new messaging, new packaging design, and you're at say three SKUs, um, three to four SKUs, you're probably you're between fifty and a hundred grand. Okay, and um, that's a good typical rebrand project. Is you know fifty grand if you're talking no digital, no website and limited number of SKUs. When you're talking about website and maybe sales materials, investor deck, other deliverables that might be yeah. needed, then you're talking closer to a hundred. Okay. But um, yeah, you can get as low as 25. And then we've had rebrands that were, you know, 250K because it's a, uh, a brand that's really established and the risk of failure is really high. Yeah. So you're going to do a lot more upfront on the the consumer understanding, the stakeholder understanding, the shopper profiling. Um, you'll likely go into testing of concepts in a in a quantitative analysis way. You're gonna, you're going to engage a market research firm yeah. to do some testing, probably before concept and post concept. Yeah. And that's a different scope of work, right? But people always say, like, how do you go from 25 to 250 and say it's the same? It's not the same. Yeah. It's not the same process, same elements, but 
handled in a different way. Sure. And again, it comes back to, you know, don't shortcut the implementation, um, you know, website design, marketing materials, conversations, thinking it through, understanding your brand and the time it takes. And obviously again, Hey, you're going to have fires to put out. Um, but the longer you prolong this, uh, postpone this, then uh, you're also losing money in that regard. Yeah. And this one's my big advocacy for keeping your expert partner on board through the actual production of packaging. First and foremost, um, inevitably, like we're delivering electronic files, right? We're, we're designing within die lines and those get sent off to a printer. And if you don't have your brand design partner, uh, involved in that pre-press and on-press, um, uh, scenario, then like you're just, you're likely going to have issues where the actual production does not faithfully represent what was intended. And people say, how does that happen? Um, well, the, the, the process of putting something to print is its own thing. And a printer can be motivated by what's easiest for them to get it done, as opposed to what's going to yeah. faithfully create this artwork uh, uh, in the yeah. way that's that's best for the client. Different machines, different people physically printing it. Um, there's a lot of factors, a lot of human error that can go on there. So you got to be able to, you need to be on hand to maybe tweak it a quarter inch or something like that, right? Yeah, it's like color matching is the big one, right? Okay. Color can be a little bit off when you're uh, printing. So okay. if you don't have a designer there who has that eye, like to you and I, it would probably look, that's ah, good. Uh, to them, they're going to say, this is way off. Yeah. It's a CMYK 130 <laughs> instead of 137. You're like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something along those lines. Cool, man. Um, I like what, uh, what you'd be putting at the end of the, uh, the blog post, but, you know, think of this as insurance, right? You made a significant investment. Why not spend a little going forward in order to maximize the value of that investment? Yeah, exactly. And so work, work with your partner, right? Think of, think of your marketing company, your, you know, your studio here as, as your partner throughout this, um, you know, you both succeed together or not. So it is. And that's absolutely true. And I say that the good firms, the expert firms, I, I know they want you to be successful for sure. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's a collaborative event, but it's also one where you need to trust the other side. Uh, and when you do, you're likely to have uh, some pretty good results. And it's a fun, it should be a fun process too, right? We're talking about yeah. creative and identity. So it shouldn't be a drag. I think that's most important is if you're, if you're talking to multiple parties, which one feels like they're going to be the best to work with yeah. really does indicate success. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Have fun with it. Uh, play around with it. You know, it, it could be something a lot more dry, right? But Hey, we're, we're dealing with pictures and colors and phrases and, and fun and, and you know, food and beverage. It's cool. It's one of, it's one of our mantras around our studios. Like have fun, the same brain surgery. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Have fun, the same brain surgery. It's like, you don't need to worry so much. Um, now when we take our clients' businesses seriously. I don't mean to say that we don't, but we should be having fun and doing the work that we do. With that. It's like brewing beer. You should be having fun if you're brewing beer. Come on. Yeah. It's, it's beer, man. Cool. Well, <laughs> I think that's a perfect way to end this, man. Um, I appreciate your time. This was a lot of fun. I've learned a lot. I hope the audience does too. I know they will. And um, keep doing what you're doing. I can't wait to see more of the work you guys continue to put out. And, uh, you know, I'm sure uh, 
We can follow you. Skidmorestudio.com, right? Skidmorestudio.com. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, blog will be up uh, with the seven, uh, seven ways to a successful rebrand. Check it out. And then uh, follow you out on the social media uh, outlets as well, right? Uh, yeah, Skidmore Studio on Instagram. Um, I'm not much of a social media participant myself, but uh, anybody can feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn as the network I participate in if you want to have a conversation. Drew Patrick, Skidmore Studio. That's how we found each other. So that's it, man. Right, cool. Well, hey, Drew, I appreciate your time. Cheers. Beer, mighty things. Thanks for having me on, Kyle. Appreciate it. Very welcome. that'll do it for today's episode appreciate you tuning in i hope you learned something i hope you really enjoyed it and if so tell a friend leave that five-star rating i mentioned earlier and comment on apple podcasts subscribe on any platform spread it around the world let's make it happen i appreciate y'all cheers and beer mighty things